Hello, I'm Richard Pfeiffer, Managing Editor of KPR, and today we're gonna to do something a little bit different. We're gonna do segments. So first, we're gonna do This Week in the News, and that's with Jack, Alex, and Spencer. Then we're gonna kick it over to 2020 coverage with Anna and I. Anna's gonna be Skyped in, it's kind of a, gonna be really fun. And then we have a government shutdown and an abortion abate, and that's gonna be with Alex, Spencer, Jack, and myself. Uh, so let's see how this goes. Okay, welcome to This Week in the News. I'm Alex Bowles. I'm Jack Bougay. I'm Spencer Cates. Yes, today we have a new guest, Spencer. Uh, I'm very excited to have you here. So uh, let's begin. So first up, I think we want to talk about Venezuela um, <laughs> and what's been happening with the, the mm-hmm. current president there. Um, <laughs> Which one? Depending on who's who. Yeah, <laughs> depending on who you ask, I suppose. Um, Jack, you kind of want to start us off, or Spencer? Uh, yeah, I can start. At least, so as far as I know, Right now, there are, quote-unquote, two acting presidents. One of them, uh, I believe, uh, Juan... Uh, Guida. Juan Guida. He was uh, elected by the people, so to say, uh, after the old president, Nicolas Maduro, was removed from office, although several countries still recognize Maduro as the acting president. Uh, As far as I know, the U.S., recognizes uh, yeah. the, the new interim yeah. almost so, immediately so yeah, um, yeah. Uh, President Guaido uh, was the former head of the National Assembly which is the, the essentially Venezuela's Congress um, I believe last year Nicolas Maduro um, tried to disband the Congress he was unsuccessful but he did severely weaken their power um, so since the the opposition believes that he has usurped his constitutional authority, I think Venezuela is up to like 27 constitutions now not including this new <laughs> one that will like be formed that. yeah um, that he he swore himself in as acting president, um, so I mean that's a really good thing. I was really uh, yeah. impressed that the Trump administration was quick to recognize him, as Very well as quick. Canada and yeah. other you know uh, partners yeah. and allies, especially North American countries. Just because, at least for North America, we have a lot of power, so just having that influence is going to be really helpful for Grado. Yeah, and yeah. I think even like majority of Venezuela's neighbors now um, recognize uh, him as the is the new president. I think it's um. All, all, yeah, Bolivia and like all of the surrounding areas. Maybe not Bolivia, but um, I definitely know like Peru and Brazil yeah. and other, especially Brazil, now that they have a new president. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, socialism has totally destroyed Venezuela. I think it's now up to nine out of every 10 Venezuelans live in poverty. Mm-hmm. And they had an inflation rate of, I think it was like 1 million percent in the last five years. So that's... It's yeah. not great, um, yeah. but you know this this is not this did not start with Maduro. This started with Chavez and his policies. So yeah, and uh, it's it's really important to notice uh, the Russian involvement with Maduro and his government. That's a really good point. They he's very um, integrated. Uh, Russia's they flew two giant bombers down there quite recently too, and I know. Maduro's made several talks with Putin and whatnot. So. Yeah, I think they just recently started hiring Russian mercenaries mm-hmm. to help kind of yeah. supplement. Oh yeah, the there's army. confirmed Russian mercenaries to protect Maduro. So it's up in the air right now, kind of. Um, I think Guaidi. Sorry, I cannot pronounce his name. It's, it's totally okay <laughs> if you butcher the name. I'm sure I already have. Yeah, um, but the the new the new president uh, pretty much immediately went into hiding because uh, the military said they would stand with Maduro in trying to apprehend him and um, enforce that he's no longer 
president. Yeah. He'd been arrested before, right? For yeah, this is not a, yeah. yeah. Yeah, back when, when <clears throat> Maduro was trying to just completely dissolve the legislative branch. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I, I mean, I think that kind of clears it up. I guess one other thing I wanted to touch on was that the current Venezuela defense attache um, to the United States defected, I believe, this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a big deal. It's definitely developing. I mean, there's not there's not a whole lot to cover right now. If you don't know the background of what we're talking about, by the way, um, there's just kind of some of it's been a socialist country for a very long time, and it the poverty has gotten worse in the in the last couple yeah, years. It, it didn't used to always be this way either. Mm-hmm. Venezuela used to be the richest country in South America. It, it relied heavily on oil mm-hmm. and oil exploitation, yeah. and when a couple of years ago those prices were fluctuating, it really just damage the economy. Yeah, I mean, you could say that the entire socialist government yeah. was propped up by oil. I, I think I don't think it would have been successful um, without <laughs> that. Uh, I guess moving on, uh, we can always check the website for more coverage on this. But yeah, I guess it's, on, it's de- a developing story. So Yeah, I guess moving on to a more contentious issue, um, New York has now passed a new abortion bill, um, and this would allow uh, someone to get a late-term abortion um, up until the child is actually born. Um, really? Yes. That's so, well, and and I, and I don't want to be misleading here because that's kind of a that's a very serious thing. Um, yeah. But it's, and Snopes has given it kind of a mixture score. But essentially, why a lot of right wing outlets are, are are not really necessarily explaining what that means. So currently, late term um, unborn children are protected in New York State law. Um, I think up to twenty four weeks, um, except to save a mother's life. Um, but RHA, which is the new um, New York bill, would repeal that and instead institute a health exception. So you could abort a child up until birth as long as it was an exception to health. But the problem with that is is that health is really subjective, so that could include age, economic factors, and emotional factors. So someone could get an abortion by just justifying that um, it's it's bad for their mental health or they're, they're stressed because of it. So that it really is legalizing it for everyone. Is that, is that, did it just say health? And kind of left it to that yeah, broad well, interpretation. Yeah, health, and then I think they named the factors, um, and I think those factors were part of the um, the, the original Roe case. So they kind of tried to line the mm-hmm. wording up with Roe v. Wade. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's just a really slippery slope. Saying like, oh, because somebody could just say, oh, this is going to cause me emotional stress, and you either have to take their word for it, or say, just screw you. And that's just sort of like, where do you draw the line? What's a compromise? Yeah, it's it's, it's very just, subjective. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's why a lot of pro-life people are upset. Um, it's no surprise that this came on the heels of the pro-life march either. Um, all, they tried to cover that up, heaven forbid. Um, they even had to manufacture stories like the Covington thing, but I'm sure we'll touch on that later. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I obviously don't agree with that. I, I don't know what your guys' personal opinions are, but I just wanted to reiterate that. No, I think it's I think that's pretty awful because I'm sure New York, in New York, that wouldn't... I mean, if someone said it was... Uh, a problem with mental health and having that child aborted up to birth, that there wouldn't be a lot of pushback with that. I mean, would you agree? Like, it, like if someone were to say this, it like kind of a kind of a loose excuse and tying it with health, there probably wouldn't be a whole lot of like. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely get what you're saying, and I guess what makes me so upset is how celebrated it is. Like they were lighting up. I think it was. Um, the Empire State Building, but I, I'm not sure on that. One of the major buildings in New York, they lit up pink in honor of the signing of the bill. And even down to the bill's name really upsets me. So I think it's the Reproductive Health Act, which when, when you think of reproductive health, to me, you think of like pap smears and making sure your reproductive organs are safe and, and cancer screenings and things like that. And this bill had nothing to do with that. Reproductive health was just the words that they used to sanitize abortion. 
And mm-hmm. I think that's it's really evident of how much they have to whitewash this issue. But that's my own personal opinion. Yeah. I think, at least for me, and I've been pretty vocal about this, it's just I'm a male, so I really it's not my body. It's not stuff that will happen to me. So I really shouldn't be able to have such a weighted opinion or weighted, yeah, opinion about it. Just because I, it's not my place to say, hey, you're, it's your body, but you're wrong. And I just feel like I shouldn't be able to make policies that reflect that. Yeah, a lot of, I think a lot of people have that opinion. I just vehemently disagree with that. Um, I mean, I, there's no reason why you can't have an opinion on something, especially if you believe that your child is alive. Then that's a moral thing. Um, so I, I don't think that you're not entitled to an opinion essentially on the issue just because you're a male. I, I just don't buy into that argument. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 I think that you can definitely have a strong opinion on abortion if you're not a female. Um, that's just that's just where yeah. I am with that. And it's it's not as not like a not a strong opinion, but I just feel like not a influential opinion. Like we shouldn't have a all male. Mm-hmm. Senate, I mean, it's not all male, but like a majority male Senate making decisions of this weight when it's really not their place. Well, I mean, people, I mean, but that's what's great about the legislative process, right? Is that if you disagree with your current representative, you can elect someone else. Um, There's, I think, a historic number of women have been elected to Congress. Um, But but just because they're women, that doesn't give them moral authority on the issue. And I definitely think it's a moral issue, although I guess it it is a constitutional one if you believe it's a life. But, um, we can always table this abortion discussion yeah. for another day, but I'd definitely like to, to talk to you about that more. Mm-hmm. Um, else in the news, let's see. So, new York uh, passed a new uh, gun law. or Well, they have new gun laws that are being challenged by the Supreme Court. Um, hmm. So I think the Supreme Court just recently decided that they were going to hear um, the case. <clears throat> and Jake, do you want to talk about that or Spencer? Um, I guess Spencer would take this because I didn't. Um, oh, go ahead. I haven't researched much on this one. Oh, here, I can take it <laughs> if you guys want. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so essentially. The um, New York Supreme or New York the, the law currently passed in New York essentially states that you can't transport firearms um, within the state even if they're unloaded and locked in a case. Um, as far as I'm concerned, this is ridiculous. No other constitutional right has um, these qualifiers that need to be met. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very excited that the Supreme Court of the United States has chosen to hear this case, yeah, and I definitely sure. think it'll be struck down along the lines of Heller. Yeah, and I mean, I. I guess I could kind of see this coming with kind of the stricter gun laws, especially in places like New York, but it's it's kind of going to the extreme. I mean, you're you're tipping to a very contentious point in, in gun control. I mean, you said that you can't even have it locked and unloaded, I think, yeah, is what yeah. it, what, what one of the stipulations You have is. to have permits to take it to shooting ranges. There's only seven shooting ranges in the state or maybe in, in, in New York City. Um, where you can take your firearms. If you have a second home in New York, you can only have the gun registered at one house. So if you have two properties, you can't take it to your other property um, so that the gun is never allowed to actually pass on the city streets without express permission, even if it's unloaded and that, in a secure yeah. case. I, I don't. I just don't understand that, really. I don't understand. I don't under... I, I guess I don't really see the correlation between kind of this perception of, of mass shootings and how that legislation will achieve... Um, a decrease in that. No, and I, I think it's, and regardless of how you feel on the issue, it, it's it's a constitutional thing. You, It's clearly an abridgment of your right to bear arms when you're not even allowed to take it to a second property that you own. Um, and I think that in similar cases like Heller versus D.C. that established your right to have a firearm, 
um, in your own home. That was an extremely narrow decision, but extremely important. I think it was um, that was a five-four decision. I think, hmm. um, or where it was heavily contested. Uh, it was along ideological lines. I think a second property might even be more vulnerable to to getting to getting robbed or broken into, or in a case where you would need a gun. Yeah, I, I just, I, it just doesn't make sense. It's, it's not constitutional, and it'll be struck down, especially with the the newest appointments on the court. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely think you'll you'll see this overturned. I mean, Spencer, do you have any opinions on this? I know you're, I'm for gun definitely more left leaning on stuff like this. At least for me, I do see as a lack of regulation of firearms as something that will cause not more mass shootings, just but more access to the weapons for a mass shooting. So I'm not saying banning guns is going to remove mass shootings. I'm just saying having guns will make mass shootings not a more common occurrence, but an easier thing to occur. I, I see your point on that. I just I, I see that with these gun control measures um, and places that, that have implemented them, they don't really have the gun culture that America has. So mm-hmm. they have a really limited number of guns, and it's not as prominent in the society. Mm-hmm. So I really don't think that it will be effective in America. Um, the places that you do see it, um, like the U.K., as soon as they banned firearms within, I think, the next five years, they had huge increases in knife crime. And now police have to go to public parks and, like, search for knives. The gangs will hide in bushes <laughs> and stuff like that for, like, when they want to have impromptu fights. It's completely ridiculous. Um, I, I just don't support gun control measures hardly at all. I think a background checks are fine. Uh, people always say they're for stronger background checks. But whenever I ask them, what do you think, um, like, what, what should those stronger background checks be, I never really get a response for people. Yeah, it's not, it's not really a concrete thing. I think people just generally want more. I think a common a common consensus is that people want this this notion of like a common sense gun control sort of thing. Um, but if the, I I don't see that being like a super uh, super viable option, especially when especially in America where you can't really compare that to other places around the world. Um, speaking of that. Do you want to move on to uh, a new up? Uh, oh yeah, so yeah, no, we're uh, kind of running short on time. Yeah, so speaking of weapons, uh, not a very good transition. The uh, <laughs> Richards are worse, trust me. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> but the uh, there's been a recent uh, approval of the ban on transgender people serving in the military, and at least for me, I know a lot of people that are openly trans, and I just feel like that's just not something our military needs when these people are meeting the necessary measures to make it into the military. I understand there might be some safety issues, but I really don't see how that should cause a ban of somebody. It's sort of like the modern don't ask, don't tell. So I hope it will be repealed. But what I did was I went and watched a HuffPo video to get that like <laughs> liberal bias. Okay. Yeah. And then I watched a Fox News video uh, to get the more conservative side. Well, yeah, you should always try yeah. to gather from multiple just sources. Sort, just to sort of see, like, how each side was taking this. And I got the sort of the same message from both, but the uh, HuffPo video was just so much more like, this is just negative, negative, negative. Like, this needs to be repealed right now, which, while I agree with that, I feel like it was just so extreme. No, I understand And when I watched the Fox News video, it was just like... He did, Trump did good, like, we're finally getting stuff done, good on him, uh, but it was still like that, they're going about this wrong. And 
sorry, I've, uh, I just really think that they're going about this wrong because part of the ban was even if you've transitioned, you could still just not be allowed to serve. And I just find that, like, if you've transitioned, you are the biological sex you feel you need to be. So that really shouldn't put a hindrance on whether or not you can serve. Okay, so I didn't know about that. I didn't know that it banned people who had already transitioned. Yeah. I think one of the major things that people bring up. So I'm I'm open to changing my mind on this issue. But for right now, I side with the ban. And this is just because I see that a lot of people, um, a lot of the current, I believe there's 7,000 uh, transgender service members that are currently serving. Um, 1% of the million, And yeah. um, there's, an, there's a cost that goes with that. Um, in terms of that the army would be liable to pay for their transition surgery. Um, mm-hmm. So that we have really strict requirements, especially in peacetime, for who can be service members. And um, I mean, Jack would probably be better on this than me, but I know that there's very um, specific requirements that you have to meet. If you have um, eyesight issues and things like that, then uh, during peacetime they'll generally reject you. So when you, people try to apply or want to be service members and they have that additional cost of the surgeries and the hormones that go with that, um, I see that as an added cost that hindrances are, or, um, hinders our, our fighting capabilities. So I, I think that's why I believe that. But I would definitely be more open to hearing it. And I think if they've already transitioned, that's a whole other topic. Yeah, so uh, is the military funded through, like, taxpayer dollars? Like, yeah. these transitions mm-hmm. be funded through taxes? Mm-hmm. So I really don't think that's – just knowing that that wouldn't be an administration and executive call, that should be something that people vote on because it's our taxes – well, I get, so I get what like, you're saying yeah. about it being a taxpayer-funded issue. Um, but, I mean, for right now, the commander-in-chief does have the authority to pass those um, these memos, essentially, on how he wants the military directed. But I would agree with you. If people are uncomfortable with it and they'd like it changed, the best thing to do would be to pass a law. Yeah. Vote, vote um, representatives that you would agree with that. But currently, the executive branch does have that authority. Jack, you maybe want to touch on this for a sec? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I also didn't know that uh, the stipulation that uh, about people that have already transitioned into uh the military can't cannot serve um yeah and again i don't i don't really necessarily know long term what this is attempting to achieve maybe maybe uh a little like a little bit of a i don't really know i'm trying to describe this but like kind of trying to say that you know maybe we shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff where we're the military should be paying for these transition surgeries but um yeah i think it's 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 contentious at the point um because i don't really i you guys kind of covered it pretty well already uh yeah Yeah. i i I guess i what i'm Mm -hmm. trying to figure out is long term where where what is the what is the long-term goal of having transgender people barred for the military. So that's why I would, I would really like to see some more mm-hmm. um, Defense Department studies on this or even just mm-hmm. expert opinions because I don't know like what the psyche is of the American soldier and how that impacts their mm-hmm. fighting unit and, and the camaraderie between people. I, I, I just don't know. And I think, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. well, I, I just think the science behind transitioning is relatively uh, somewhat somewhat of a new thing. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that people that are transgender are a new thing, but there have been more options for people that are transgender, and we're kind of seeing how that plays into the military and how people, uh, what that perception of the military is and how t- kind of transitioning would affect um, service 
I mean, and we're in a long spur of peacetime right now. So again, we don't know how that will see, mm-hmm. how that how that will play out. Yeah, that's, and like I mentioned, the yeah. standards are generally more strict during peacetime. Right. So that's definitely yeah. a factor. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess moving on from that, our last topic of the day, Jack, did you want to talk about uh, the indictment of Roger Stone? Yeah, so we got another um, kind of event in the Mueller probe. Uh, Roger Stone is a uh, kind of a, a longtime friend of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, since like the 1980s, and he was uh, a big advisor for his uh, 2016 campa- campaign. Uh, he was recently, um, he came under fire for the Miller investigation. He was charged on Friday with, uh, I think the charge was lying and witness tampering in connection with the investigation, um, with, the, with the whole Russian investigation, um, with the 2016 campaign, because he had apparently said during 2016 that he was in contact with Julian Assange, uh, of WikiLeaks about the Clinton emails, but he has since said that he did not. Um, I mean, the guy's a, he's kind of a character. I won't go too much into that, but uh, his, his, his character has been severely uh, questioned in the past uh, couple days over if he's telling the truth or not. I mean, he, uh, I think he's, he, he self-proclaimed himself as a, like a trickster or something. He's kind of a weird dude. Um, yeah, it's. it's just, like, I feel like with the Mueller investigation, every time I hear about it, I end up waiting three days, and then some the, the story has kind of disappeared, yeah. you know? So nothing seems to really stick for me. I know Roger Stone was like, he lied. He said that, and this is my understanding, I was listening to NPR on the car the other day, actually on the way up to the office, and they were talking about how Roger Stone had been asking, he lied about asking a radio host for information in connection with WikiLeaks and the DNC. And for me, this, and he like tried to say that didn't happen, but they found text message records that yeah, he did. Yeah, the text messages. And for yeah. me, that even proves further that there was no direct link of collusion between the Trump administration or the Trump campaign and the Russian government. Because why would they need Roger Stone to be begging a, uh, right. a radio host mm-hmm. for, for information? It just doesn't really add up for me. Um, and I haven't really even seen any concrete evidence to see that tie. At this point, I'd just like to see it wrapped up. It's been like three years now. So yeah, and he's he said he won't he won't flip on Trump, and he's 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 kind of known for being the type of guy where he's like, I'll bend the truth because you know it's politics. So it's you're kind of seeing those that those kind of two interests collide over if he was obstructing justice or if he was just kind of playing into that political kind of uh, political kind of bending the truth and trying to get a leg up um or if there's something deeper there that's kind of hard for me to say if there's something deeper with like the, the russia investigation if he's actually guilty i i don't really see a lot in i don't i don't see him as like too much of a super nefarious uh guy or really really relevant or, <laughs> right yeah exactly yeah. um I don't think he's the best of character, but then again, I don't really see him as it, most political consultants are. <laughs> and I just <laughs> kind of a shady guy. Just every time they like find quote unquote find somebody else, or that they discover something else, it just leads to this whole other like side thing that just happened. And I'm just I don't want to say excited, but I'm really anxious to see how this all plays out and whether or not this just huge uh, goose chase that's gone on since the election is going to end up saying, yeah, he colluded. No, he didn't collude. Uh, Just what actually happened and just why this is so 
impactful. Yeah, I just I just haven't really seen anything yet. Um, and like I said, mm. every time I do, I hear bombshell. Like I think I right. saw you, you see, a clip the other it's, day it's, where it's, it was like <laughs> every news organization in a compilation saying it's, bombshell. It's literally like, the it's the headline every time is what blank could mean for Trump yeah, and, <laughs> in the and, next and, couple and days, just, and the story kind of fades away sometimes. So right. uh, yeah, I would be interested to see that going forward. Um, Maybe it I will. Think, Who knows? But it probably won't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of elections, I think the next segment, um, Richard and Anna are going to talk about the 2020 election. So Mm -hmm. stay tuned. Stay tuned. Thanks, guys. Okay, we're back once more. Uh, this segment is the 2020 elections. It's going to be an interesting conversation with me and Anna. Uh, we're going to talk about those serious candidates, maybe the not-so-serious candidates. Uh, and, yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to be a, a very enlightening conversation, I'm sure. Anna, do you kind of wanted to talk about, like, the Dem bios that we're doing and who do you think is serious, who do you think is not-so-serious? So right now we're working on um... – I think it's a 13-page, maybe more, um, document of just all the Democrats who have announced their candidacy in the 2020 elections. And I would say there's like at least, let's see, one, I would say five serious candidates. Um, and who do you think I are, can rule out two who, do you, who, do you th- who won't be. Who do you huge. think are the serious candidates right now? Because I have, I have a mental list. Oh, and I, might I just uh, add, let me just add one more thing. Anna's on Skype, so that if she's sounds a little bit different that's why but yeah uh yeah. What, what do you think in your mind are the th- like the three serious candidates that you said um kristen gillibrand from new york um tulsi gabbard i don't think is serious at all i don't think she has any place in even even running um julian castro i think is serious andrew yang is not serious um and then of course elizabeth warren do you think Joe Biden? If, do you think Joe Biden is going to run? Because I mean, if we, are I we think gonna he's put them going to run. I think he will I th- too. I think he'll end up running. And, I, and he's part of my candidate list. I have right now, and I, I have a little bit more condensed list. And this might also Kamala Harris. I, I, I do have. I have Warren, Biden, and Kamala Harris. But yes, also Beto <laughs> is a. I, I, I think Beto might be a better VP than a a, a P. But <laughs> um, that's true. Uh, just because, like, he he's young, inexperienced. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't think that he has the political mem- momentum. Uh, you know, like he he had tremendous political mem- momentum in his Senate race, but on a national stage, uh, you know, he has those connections, but I don't think they're serious enough for a presidential run. He might be, you know, better served as a VP. Um, but I, I think-, think he has some of the following now, though, to be a president. I mean, friends now like were so like caught up in his Senate race. I feel like he has the following, but I agree he would be better at the vice president. He, he might have the people, but does he have the establishment? I think that's the problem, right? The reason why Bernie yeah. lost in the primaries was because he had the people, but he didn't have the establishment. Um, yeah. Do you think Bernie's going to run again? Uh, that, that's actually interesting. He kind of came out and he said that he um, he kind of came out and he said that you know if no other candidates that he thought could be president or should be president 
were to throw their hat yeah. in than he would. But I, I honestly don't think so. I think he's he's too old for one. Um, I don't think he's illegitimate. Yeah, a and legitimate he kind of illegitimize himself a little bit with you know the the failed primary run. I don't think people are going to yeah. take him so seriously. I think that you know he might cause a disruption in the primaries if he decides to run, but he I don't mm-hmm. think he has a serious chance in actually, um, you know, being a a uh, nominee. Yeah. Um, but I think that if you look at all the candidates right now, they're all missing one mm-hmm. thing, right? They're all they're either missing you know personability or a progressive agenda, right? I mean, yeah. look at um, Kristen Gillibrand for example, right? Yeah, she, uh, you know, she. She's missing both of them, to be honest with you. Um, she's missing a progressive agenda. She was part of the Blue Dog Coalition as a as mm-hmm. a um, junior senator. Uh, she was and, and a representative. Um, she you know pushed for bills that were seen as more moderate or conservative in her ten, in her early tenure. Um, yeah. You know, and additionally, you know, she is not as personable as some of the other candidates. Like a, I mean, she may attract moderates, but she's not going to attract a lot of. I think, far left Democrats. I think if she were to run, right, um, she yeah. could have a serious chance. I think because yes. she is moderate, she would have a serious chance. But because yes. she's not so personable, I don't know if she'll have a chance. It's like kind of like that Hillary Clinton syndrome, right? I mean, yeah, I don't know much about her, but I just Kristen Gillibrand. Yeah. Okay, but it just sounded like you didn't know much about Hillary Clinton <laughs> the way you phrased that. So <laughs> I, I know that you know about Hillary Clinton. I was just making sure that you know people who are watching knew that you knew a little bit about Hillary Clinton. But um, no, I, yeah, I, I she she's moderate, or she's going to be portrayed as moderate by the media, of course. Yeah. Um, and that kind of worked against Hillary Clinton. And what really worked against Hillary Clinton was the, you know, the personability factor. Um, so I think you're yeah. looking for someone who is progressive and personable, which is really hard to find. And she's not either of those. And she's not either of those. I think, and that's why that's why I have Warren and Biden as my top two picks, because they're only yeah. missing one but of those. I also factors. don't think Warren is super personable either. If we look at that video of her getting a beer from her fridge, she tries so hard to be personable, and she's not. Right, but at least she's not missing two. Right, I think that that's you know. That's true. Like for example, you know, Warren has the progressive agenda. Right, but she lacks mm-hmm. the personability. Biden, right, has the personability, but he lacks the progressive agenda. So it's, yeah. it's kind of like it's 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 kind of like a you know a catch twenty two for the Democrats, right? Either they yeah. want the progressive agenda and lose, or they mm-hmm. want the personability but don't get their agenda passed through, right? I mean, I mean that's exactly and. Think, Either way, I don't think I think Trump is going to get reelected if unless he fails to get the border wall. I think. Either way, the Democrats aren't going to get their agenda passed. I think that that's a big theme in Washington right now is that even if the Democrats get a solid nominee, which isn't looking likely, but even if they do and they get in the White House, you know, all, their mm-hmm. whole agenda is going to be, you know, um, is going to be obstructed by the Republican Senate. So I think it's, it's more yeah. of a political victory, if anything, to get in the presidency at this point. I don't think that any policy objective is going to be really reached. Um, and, yeah. and you see that with Trump, too, right now, right? I mean, you see that with Trump. You know, he, his you know, position as president is more, uh, more political right now than actually policy-based, right? He's not getting any of his yeah. policy through because of the Democratic House. But going, going back to 2020, um, do you see any, like, rising contenders other than you know like the two two or three establishment picks i don't think so i mean 
Beto, like we said, is a, more of a VP than a president. I just, I don't think anyone fresh is going to come out of this. I think a lot of people are trying to imitate the Bernie Sanders style, right? Of like coming out of yeah. left field and like being, you know, crazy and, you know, but like, you know, having like a lot of like, I think, that, you know, there's that Pete guy uh, that the, that Vice did a, a, a biography on. Um, yeah. But, and then, you know, then there's people like, um, there's people like I think Elizabeth Warren is trying to imitate Bernie Sanders, but she's really an establishment pick, which is kind of she's goofy. Not. Um, so I I don't know I I don't think that there's going to be any left fields this primary season. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you agree. Do you agree with that? I I agree. I don't think anyone's really going to come out that I'm not expecting. And I, I think that might be good for the Democrats. I think that might be policy wise, right? Because what you would see with a really progressive president, right, is is um, is a, a schism in the in the you know in in the in the base, right? You'd, yeah. Because Bernie Sanders caused a schism, right? And it just takes another you know really progressive left field kind of politician to create even mm-hmm. a, a bigger schism, right? And yes. uh, maybe even the Democratic Party breaking up. So uh, I think, and if your party's broken up, obviously you can't pass a you know policy. <laughs> So, yeah. um, do you think that 2020 might be the death sentence for Democrats or the death sentence for Republicans? It's definitely a death sentence for Democrats. I mean, 2018 was kind of their hit, like, they hit rock bottom, I'd say. I mean, they expected a really big blue wave. They didn't get it. I mean, they took the House, but I just, I don't think, I don't think they're going to do, they're not, not going to come out on top in 2020. Okay, I think they're already reeling from a political defeat, you know, the failed yeah. blue wave um they're already reeling they're still reeling from 2016 believe it or not you know with <laughs> with a you know progressive moderate schism it just takes one more yeah. political event you know to to kind of you know throw the whole party out of whack you know i it's yeah. i think the stars are aligning for the democrats you know if they don't handle 2020 right that they can face a serious um a serious infight within their own party uh, yeah. I think what's who's going to head that is uh, AOC Alexander Ocasio Cortez. Um, oh, you know, our fave. <laughs> I mean, but seriously, I mean, you, you see, you know, politicians like her challenging, you yeah. know, you know, uh, establishment Democrats, and establishment Democrats are usually more moderate. And if establishment Democrats feel threatened, then obviously, um, you know, their base is going to be you know, showing more, you know, they're basically going to wave support. You know, they're going to, you know, you know, you know what I mean, right? I mean, do you, yeah. s- do you see, you know, a, a dismantling of the Democratic Party anytime soon? Or do you think that the base is going to be able to handle any kind of schism? I feel like I just don't think that it's going to stay. I don't think they're going to like, hand- I mean, they'll be able to handle 2020. 2024 is a whole different question. And that's some that's far too ahead for us to, I think, think about. But I don't think if, if they don't come out on top in 2020, 2024 is be really, really hard for them, and even 2022. Yeah, I think I think I kind of I uh, more or less agree with that. I think that um, I think they have one more hit, and then they're done. I, I agree. I, I I agree to some extent with that. I think that if um, if they get another political defeat, another big political defeat, right, like in uh, in 2020, right, if Trump wins re-election, then there's going to be some serious infighting within the Democratic Party. You know, more yeah. progressives are going to blame the moderates. Moderates are going to blame the, uh, blame the progressives. Um, but if they win, it might be a temporary band aid, 
right on a on a deeper rooted mm-hmm. problem right they're going to have a, yeah. a figurehead to rally for right for the next four or eight years but then they're going to have to deal with you know the the growing problem the growing divide between progressives and moderates um yeah. and, and i think people underestimate the moderates you know additionally right people like to oh, say for sure moderates are a huge base in both parties right they're a silent base I think- they're, they're we need huge. to see more moderates in politics right now. Honestly, I was just talking to my dad about this. I think moderates need to have a stronger hold in politics right now, and they almost have none right now. Like you just said, they're pretty silent when it comes to it. Oh, they're silent, but they're they're uh, make up a huge portion, right? Oh, I mean, like they're huge. And I I'm gonna I've said this since you know uh, I said this since the you know beginning of the 2020 discussion. Uh, I said this during the midterms. You know, politics. Elections, more specifically, are won or lost in the suburbs. You know, and sure. and you know who wins in the suburbs? It's moderates. Moderate. It's moderates. It's moderates. Yeah. And um, you know, to say anything else is is you know kind of taking a huge you know you know factor out of the equation. You know, I, I think that the reason why the Democrats won in twenty eighteen was because of moderates. And now you have you know progressives attacking the moderates. You're having you know, yeah. you're having the party itself attack the people that won them. You know a a, exactly. a small victory. So well, I was talking to someone, um, and she was like talking about how Claire, who I worked on her um, senator, Claire McCaskill, her reelection to be senator, yes, um, was like Claire is a moderate hiding in the blue and I said why is that a problem she's still a democrat and so even democrats are attacking their own leaders and like not that Claire is a leader of Missouri anymore but she still is not respected by some democrats I think that's a problem within the party yeah I think that democrats are really um, they have a tendency to self cannibalize a whole lot and I don't think that they see it as a problem you know I don't think that they see. Um, I don't think. I don't even see. I don't even think they see themselves as as cannibalizing themselves. So a great, a bigger example, mm-hmm. a, a more recent example of this, right? You know, we we could talk about you know AOC going off on some you know senior members of the Senate and the House, but I think pertaining to 2020, you see a cannibalism of Kamala Harris, right? And Kamala Harris yeah, is in my top three, but she is taking some serious hits, you know, with a with the New York Times opinion piece about her being a progressive prosecutor or not. Yes, and um, you know, I, it, whether she'll be able to survive that, I don't know. But the New York Times is a pretty liberal piece, and the person who wrote it was obviously a progressive, right? And you see that yeah. you know a progressive is attacking you know a, a, another self-proclaimed progressive. You know she's you know a, a one progressive, one Democrat, right, is attacking another Democrat, yeah. um, and ruining her her twenty twenty chances. I might add, um, so. Uh, I don't know how the Democrats are going to expect are expecting to win elections when they're when they're atta- you don't even have your own people fighting for you. Exactly when you when you don't even have you know when you're yeah when you're attacking your own people, it, it makes yeah. no sense to me. Um, and I think that that's why they're gonna they're gonna feel the they're going to feel the burn in in twenty twenty. Um, yes. Uh, we're, okay, and we'll kind of wrap it up a little bit. Um, Let's go down the list of the Dem bios that we have. Yeah, which go, will yeah, be up on go, go ahead. All the, all the declared candidates. So Kamala Harris, California. Um, she's a she's senator. She's a pretty standard pick. Um, 
she she's what you kind of expect to come out of the Dem- or the Democratic Party. She's a woman, just kind of expected. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, she's a Democrat from Massachusetts, also very interesting. Very, um, yeah. I mean, she's not sure how I feel about her. She's a you know a you know a um she's an obvious nominee or not a nominee yeah. an obvious candidate for a while now. She was now. the first one to announce her candidacy. Yes, yes, she um, was. Uh, there's Biden. Um, Biden. Well, I who kind has of. He has, yeah, he has yet to declare. Um, but I, I want to throw him on the list because I'm yeah. 99% sure that he he's going to declare. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll continue to update this list as. Um, well, I mean, there, and then just the just kind of like just to start lightning round, right? There's uh, Richard Oriega, uh, and yeah. he's from John Delaney. John Delaney. Uh, Richard Oriega is from uh, West Virginia. Uh, do you know where John Delaney's from? Is he? John Delaney's from Maryland. Maryland. Uh, and then you got, yes. um, who's a Hawaii, uh, the Hawaii uh, uh, candidate? Oh, um, Tulsi? Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi. And then you got... Um, uh, and then you had Julian Castro, yeah, Castro. who used to be the he was a, former Secretary of Housing and Development. Yeah. You've got Andrew Yang, who is the most interesting person. <laughs> Very uh, democratic guy. <laughs> and then we have... Chris and Gillibrand, who we talked about. Right, obviously, Chris and Gillibrand. Um, I think that's everyone who's announced. I think that at, at this current moment, that's everyone who's announced. That and, is everyone who's announced. And I don't think the list is looking so good for the Democrats. <laughs> I mean, if you look at who's on the list, I mean, there's just no powerful candidate. And it looks like... I'm really honestly, excited to watch Elizabeth Warren crash and fall. The, the like, way, crash and burn is going to be my favorite. I, the way the list is growing, it looks like the Republicans in, in 2016... I mean, there's like 11, can- there's, you know, there's, I, there's uh, so many candidates. It's, it's, yeah. but I mean, the, Dem- the Republicans were obviously able to pull themselves out of that. So I, I don't know. Maybe the Democrats will. I, I don't know. Um, they won't. <laughs> but I, like everything in politics, time will tell uh, whether um, the Democrats fail or um, win in 2020 uh, will be yet to be seen. I'll see it when I believe it. Um but other than that, uh, thanks for coming on, Anna. I know that it was kind of hard, you know, coming in on Skype and everything, but I'm glad that you good. could come in. Um, and then one we'll more be going, week of this. One, <laughs> one more week, and you'll be back in the studio. Um, Can't wait. So next up, we got uh, me, Jack, Alex, and Spencer. We're going to be talking about the government shutdown and abortion. Uh, thank you. And we are back with another segment. We're going to be covering the government shutdown and its reopening and the New York abortion bill. I'm Richard Pfeiffer, and I'm joined with... Spencer Cates, Alex Bowles, and Jack Bouguet. So let's kick it off with the government. Uh, it has been a wild ride. <laughs> to, put it light, to put it lightly. To put it lightly. Um, Trump caved. Um, we know this. Uh, Nancy Pelosi kind of uh, outfoxed him. Um Spencer, I mean, do you see that same thing? Do you think that Trump caved, or do you think that he... I think it's less of a cave, but he's actually realizing that there are people in the country that are starving and don't have the money, and he's kind of realizing that people live paycheck to paycheck and not million-dollar loan to million-dollar loan. And I think he's actually doing something to help the American people, which is really nice. 
but it took so much and so long for him to realize that that it's less of a cave and more of a oh crap I need to do something or I won't get reelected. Do you think that his base was really being affected by the shutdown? I just really don't see that. I see that a lot of federal workers who usually vote Democrat were affected by the government shutdown, but I really don't see any Trump supporters being directly affected by the government shutdown. Yeah, and I'm starting to see that with Trump sort of going back on a lot of his campaign promises where it's really more bipartisan than a lot of politicians are nowadays. So maybe he's realizing, hey, it, they might not vote for me, but they're still American people that are struggling because of something I'm being kind of stubborn about and just a current problem in our society. So I'm going to try to help them. But yeah. I mean, I, I just, if he thought that, then he wouldn't let the government, I mean, he wouldn't let the government shut down in the first place. I mean, I mean, that's the whole, I mean, like that's, I don't know. I just don't see, I think that what really happened was Nate Pelosi convinced him that if he reopens government, he can have his wall or he might be able to have his wall or he has a better chance of having his wall, you know, with the government being open than the government being shut down. Um, I really don't see him being too concerned with the federal workers that were furloughed. I'm sure that there was some concern, but I'm sure that his main concern was the wall because that's why he shut down. The, I mean, yeah. that's why, you know, there was that impasse in the first place. I mean, what, what do you think about that, Alex? I mean, do you think that he was concerned about the 800,000 furloughed workers or do you think he was more concerned about his wall? No, I don't think he was concerned with the workers at all. Obviously, you already mentioned, I mean, he wouldn't have shut down the government in the first place if that was a primary concern. Um, I mean, politically, it's bad, but the feedback that he would have gotten from his base had he secured the wall funding would have more than made up for that. Um, and in, I don't really understand the issue with the furloughed workers either. I mean, uh, people, it's been like, what, three weeks maximum? It's, I think it was like, uh, it was over weeks. 30 days. So it was, five days, five weeks. Yeah, so it was, it was about a month. So how many paychecks would that be like? One I think the two average, paychecks? I think the average three, federal worker two, missed, three. yeah, two. two. The, two average, the two. average federal worker missed around $5,000 in pay. And just TSA workers, they don't make a lot of money. So a lot of them are working paycheck to paycheck. So I, I just don't understand really why they could happened. not have gone to financial financial institutions to get loans to make because up for this, especially when they receive back pay. Uh, Alex, loans have interest, and if they're living paycheck to paycheck, well, they I know, don't but have that's but the that, money but, for that. But interest. this is not a new concept. So when you yeah, go to work for the federal government, you have yeah. to understand that things like this are liable to happen. This is what it, you get benefits at a government job, and one of the trade offs on this is you might have to deal with the shutdown. Interest for a, a loan for more than like a month or two is minimal, <laughs> and if you can't pay that back with the back pay that you get then you're doing something wrong with your financial savings. Yeah. I, I don't know how you can pay 1% interest on, for like a month. And that's the problem. It's a lot of Americans, like when they took this job, they expected like, hey, there might be a shutdown, but they didn't expect it to go on for so long, I think. And just hopefully they will be more financially responsible as time goes on. But as of now, it's just been a big struggle. It just seems like a personal responsibility issue to me. I mean, regardless, it doesn't look great for him in the long run. I mean, people are still going to hate him for it, regardless if they can afford to take out a loan. I mean, I don't think that, that it's necessarily too relevant if they can. The, the like point the, is the, the perception. But, the like, the place. damage is already done, right? So, yeah. like, the political damage has already occurred. Hmm. So, and he was never really concerned about them in the first place. And they have the ability to cover their cost with those loans. So I don't understand. It would have been more advantageous for him just to stick it out. And, and approval rating dips during a shutdown really rebound after the shutdown anyway. So, I mean, you don't really see any long-term effect of Trump's approval rating or any president's approval rating for that matter. You know, Obama's approval rating went down during, you know, the shutdown, the Affordable Care Act shutdown, and it rebounded afterwards. You know, they don't really have any long-term effect. What really does have a long-term effect is, is you know, people's perception of the president. You know, is the president weak? Is he, you know, strong? And he showed himself as, as completely weak 
during during you know after reopening the shutdown. He showed himself as someone who was not going to you know uh, take his campaign uh, promises seriously and someone who would cave to Democrats. I don't think the Republicans are really looking for that in 2020, and I hope that he can you know rebound his public image after this. Yeah. What was his approval rating before the shutdown? It was like in the 40s. It's it was high 40s, and then I think it went down to 43 during the shutdown. Um, I don't know what it's going to be like afterwards. It's, it's like dead, I said, he low caved. 40s now. Yeah, it's 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 low. Um, and it'll probably go even lower now that he has announced that he's reopening the government because now he has the anger of the furloughed federal workers and the Democratic Party, and now his base is also dissatisfied with him as well. So you'll you'll see a dip further. I mean, especially for someone who championed on being uncompromising, it's kind of I think that'll be a pretty big loss for him. Not even necessarily that he shut down the government, but that his way about his way of going about reopening it. I think even though it's it's for three weeks, I think it's it's going to be really kind of a, a sore spot for a lot of his base because they'd want to see him stick to his guns with this shutdown if it means getting the wall built. And I don't think that they're going to, I don't think that Trump has the political, I don't think Trump or Republicans for that matter have the political willpower to go through another shutdown. So what Nancy Pelosi really just needs to do is say, I'm not going to fund your wall, right? And when the three weeks, you know, run up for this temporary funding bill that passed, right? No Republican in their right mind is going to, you know, turn down a long-term funding bill. Right? They're not going to want another government shutdown. Right? That will, that will look immensely bad. I don't think, you know, I don't think that approval ratings for any Republican senator or you know uh, Donald Trump would be able to recover from that. Two government shutdowns. I mean, that's kind of what I'm touching on, right? Like there, there really was no need for this. This was not an advantageous political move. This was mm. a cave. It was almost kind of selfish. Like, but that was his. I think for me at least, it was he promised the wall, and he is trying to come through with that. But he was kind of stubborn and selfish by closing the government for so long. I mean, I could make to, I could make the same arguments though for the Democrats, yeah. right? Like they've supported wall funding before really in way more money than now. Because I think I believe Chuck Schumer, who's obviously been opposed to this, you know, he he was up there on the podium with Nancy Pelosi. He voted for the Secure Fence Act in 2006, as well as other numerous Democrats. So this is not a this is not a new issue. Yeah. The Democrats just didn't want. And he, the, the Democrats were, I think, in my opinion, and this goes to the whole argument, is it Trump shutdown or is it Schumer shutdown, hmm. right? Hmm. And I, I would say that it's more Schumer shutdown, right? The Democrats were in favor of, you know, bu- uh, border uh, patrol security and uh, wall funding, maybe not wall, but fence yeah. funding, like Alex said. Um, but then when Trump, you know, ran on it during his campaign, they became vehemently opposed to it. Nate supposed to even called it immoral, you know, a, a bill that she probably voted on, right? In affirmation, you know, ten years later is she now suddenly suddenly immoral. She she didn't vote for this. Oh, okay, well, Ch- Chuck Schumer it, it obviously supported Nancy Pelosi's statements that the wall was immoral. So, you know, um, you know to say that you know it suddenly became you know an act of national security, then you know to uh, immoral is is ridiculous on the Democrats' part. Yeah, and I think it's really a, like national security itself is a valence issue. Like both sides agree that we need to protect our country. But since the parties these days are just so polarized, say, like you're saying, like Pelosi and Schumer, while they may have agreed with this back in 2006, now that it's Trump and the current Republican Party supports this, they're like, no, because the Democrat Party is just so anti. Right. So I'm, I'm kind of confused what you're saying, Spencer. Are you saying that it's a Trump so, shutdown? Or are you saying it's a Schumer shutdown? Or are you saying, that, saying it's, that it's a result of our political climate? I'm, I'm kind of confused about what you're saying. Both sides are being very selfish and very stubborn to get their way to sort of get to that very popular uh, f- fan base almost of just like the Antifa, like 
no wall or all wall, and they're just trying to appeal to those mass bases. So, I mean, and such is the so, nature of politics. Yeah. I mean. But I just feel like just to address the, uh, like the Schumer's like uh, switch on his position on the wall or the fence or whatever, uh, um, I just feel like he's just trying to appeal to the current Democratic Party and just sort of being anti-Trump. So would you say that both parties are trying just to appeal to their base and it really wasn't about the wall or wasn't about uh, it was really wasn't about the wall. It was about just appeasing their base. It's it's like a like a like they're trying to flex on each other. It's a flexing contest to see who is stronger, who has more influence in the current political environment. Yeah. And obviously Trump caved at that point. You know, yeah. Obviously, and that sort of weakened his grip. Well, um, let's move on to. I mean, we all know that the politics is about appealing their base, mm-hmm. and another uh, <laughs> topic that has been in the mainstream more recently than the wall has <laughs> is uh, the New York abortion bill. Um, and that's obviously, uh, you know, New York's obviously a blue state. And uh, Andrew Cuomo signed into law. Alex, do you know when he signed in? It was a was it a week ago? Was it last week? I want to say it was over this weekend. Actually. Yeah, I think it was over this weekend. Um, Although and, I don't think legislative sessions happen over the weekend, so perhaps it was Friday. Yeah, I, th- I think it might have been Friday. I think I, I saw the photo of him and you know his cabinet kind of, uh, you know, being all happy with signing the bill. Um, and that kind of sparks a it kind of sparked a nationwide discussion about abortion. You know, you had the pro life march, now you have you know the New York abortion bill, right? And it really throws you know those two events really threw it into mainstream discussion for the time being. Um, Alex, I know that you are have some opinions about abortion, uh, some pretty strong opinions. I know Spencer, you have some pretty strong opinions. I would like to see what Alex has to say first, and maybe Spencer, you want to kind of want to go. Yeah, I mean, so I'm I'm pretty pro-life. I don't really agree with abortion um, after conception. I, I think would be the best way to put it. I I, I don't really believe in, in abortion in, in any form, except for when the mother's life is in danger. Because then, I mean, both both claims are valid in that sense. Both lives are valid. And what so. do you see so horrendous about this uh, New York bill? Just so uh, I think the the celebration particularly is is what's most upsetting. I mean, the uh, abortion is never something to be celebrated with. I mean, you see that the American public agrees on that in wide variety. I think they're split about fifty fifty on on abortion as an issue. But in terms of celebrating it and the way it's portrayed in the media, um, very little Americans actually hold that belief. So when when you see it lit up pink and you have people clapping and stuff when the they're New York, reproductive. The, New York, uh, the Freedom Tower, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I couldn't remember if it was the Empire State Building or the Freedom Tower, but I th- yeah, okay. So I, I just think that the celebration of abortion is particularly horrendous. Spencer? Yeah, I agree that it's it's not something to be celebrated if for a lot of people it is a very big decision. Do you choose to end, some say, end the life you've created? Do you choose to end this path of your life and just not have the child because of whatever factor caused it. And it's a very serious issue, and it should not be something that people light up buildings and say, yay, abortion. It should be something that's very controlled, very safe. So if you do need it, it's there, and it's safe, and it's just available. Because in a lot of countries uh, it where it is illegal, it still happens. You, can't, you can always ban something, but it will still happen, like marijuana and the past couple years before it was legalized. I, 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 I can see that, yeah. but I guess my response to that would be is just because <laughs> the government, just because it's sanctioned doesn't necessarily mean that it's morally right. I mean, there's been a lot of things that the government does in the past that isn't morally right. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that's 
you know, illegal that people still do that's immoral, right? Murder is illegal, right? People still murder. So I, don't, I don't think we should legalize it just because people are going to continue to do it. Um, I just don't, that, that yeah. argument doesn't really hold water for me, but I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, as it shouldn't be legalized because people are gonna still do it. It should be legalized so people do it safely. And murder, while that sort of church and state thing, while some people may argue you are murdering a child, uh, you just don't see it. Yeah. That. Yeah. So it sounds to me like you fall along the, the safe, legal, and rare line. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Richard, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And and, the, and that was, you know, that's been kind of like a, you know, a, I want to call it a rallying cry, but like kind of like the rationale that a lot of Democrats used, especially during, you know, the Clinton administration and kind of like, you know, during the, the blue dog Democrat era was, you know, if it, it, abortion should be safe and legal, but it also should be extremely rare. And the counter to that is is pretty you know logical. It's if it's safe and it's legal, right? Then why should it be rare, right? We're saying that it's moral, right? By saying that it's legal, you know, we're saying that you know we should make it safe, right? So people have greater access to it. So why should it be rare? Why why are we making it rare if it's both moral and safe? Yeah, and that's really where you get to that fuzzy line of like, uh, did you just have too much to drink one night and you weren't safe, or was it some really awful rape scenario and you could lose your life because you have the child? And that's really where I'm still on the fence about whether or not I agree with that. And just in cases of rape, in cases of incest, in cases of just the mother will lose her life, then yes, there needs to be some form of available safe abortion just so that person continue can continue living their life. Um, but when it comes to that, just, oh, it's legal and it's safe, I want to do it because why not? I feel like there are better options to give that child a life rather than just end something because you made a mistake one night. Okay, so it sounds to me then like you're, you're, you're a little more malleable on this issue then. So you, you would say that the child or the, the fetus is alive then? To an extent. Like the nine months unless it is a case of danger to the mother or rape or incest, you probably shouldn't wait that long unless it's a really, really tough decision. But I just feel like at nine months, that's a fully developed fetus. And so like that's when would you say that a fetus, right, becomes a child? I, I don't know the uh, development that well, but when like it, at heartbeat, at like when it starts developing little it, fingers and toes, like pain receptors. Like, what, where would that be for you? That's it's very morally ambiguous. That's the problem. Yeah. I think is that it's morally it's where ambiguous. Do, where do you so, draw the line? So that's why I tend yeah. to side on the the pro life side is because I can't make those judgments. I, I yeah. don't know. So I would much rather have it a full pro life stance, yeah. um, unless there's yeah. viability issues with the baby or the mother's life is a danger, yeah. then I'm, I'm much more Yeah, And that's why that. I'm sort of saying it's like when there is that issue, we need to have it safe. Yeah. So I, I would say yeah. that I would be I would be more lenient towards the genetic viability and, and the mother's life is endangered because obviously the mother's life to me is just as valid as the, the fetus's life. But what I, I disagree with you on is, is the rape and incest cases. I think that if you believe fundamentally that the fetus is alive, then there is no moral... <laughs> There's no moral option for aborting a child because it is a child in your eyes if you if you see it that way. I know there's a lot of people that just think it's a clump of cells, and that's a whole different debate. But if you think that it is a life, then even if it is rape or incest, there's no moral justification for aborting that. 
um, th- putting it up for adoption and there's assistance that can be given to you. There's, there's better options than that. Yeah. I, I think that's the sentiment I kind of share. I just say to generalize what, how I feel about it. When you get down to it, it really is a morality issue. Um, and since people on the, on the, the pro-choice side can't really come to a consensus about what, what life is during, um, during between conception and the actual birth that that makes me a bit confused because if one one person decides that it's say it's at the heartbeat but one person says it's later how is, that's kind of contradictory within that whole entire pro-choice spectrum so what i say is just i that's why i'm kind of against abortion too because no one has been able to decide how life when life begins in and during um during that pregnancy stage and yeah i think unfortunately right you see with the new york bill that they are coming to a consensus though coming to a consensus that it's nine months <laughs> you know which is which is in i think in most people's eyes most reasonable people's eyes is is a <coughs> horrendous you know a horrendous consensus to come to that the baby's not a baby until it comes out of you know the the birth canal you know, yeah. I mean that that's and and I've I mean I've listened to to audio and uh, different videos from these these um like women's march and things like that and I know this doesn't speak for everyone but there's a large portion of the more radical side that think that you know I think one lady literally said until the umbilical cord is cut it's my decision and I think that's extremely grotesque yeah, that is at least for me that's too far I think I do, I don't want to say this is a very loose just uh, thing but just like halfway is sort of where I would draw the line. If you're continuing to let the child develop past four and a half, five months, then that's really where you have to commit to this child, whether you put it up for adoption or, yeah. Um, But after that point, really, like nine months, that's a fully developed fetus, more or less. Uh, That's a child that's just in the womb. Yeah, Alex, you want to say one more thing and then we'll kind of wrap it up? Yeah, I mean, I, I can see what you're saying with that, but I guess my one question is, like, what is the marker that makes halfway? Because I feel like that's more just a concession for the sake of concession. So unless there's, like, a specific marker that you can tell me about halfway, why you would choose you're to You're talking about a that. biological marker, correct? Yeah, yeah, so, like, heartbeat, brainwave, thing like that, uh, pain, uh, what type of organs have been developed, and, and things like that. And I feel like... I can't make those justifications, and I don't think really anyone can. That's that's more of a moral thing. So for me, that's why I err on the side of pro-life is because I don't know. Is it a heartbeat? Is it pain receptors? What is the justification for life? Um, so so that is, that's my position. Okay, and with that, I think that we are finally ready to wrap up this episode of Kirkwood Political Review's Politicast. Uh, thanks for you know, sticking with us through that experimental segment thing. I think we're going to do it next week. Um, it worked out really well. Everyone got a chance to talk. Um, we covered a lot more things that we could do, you know, as a, as a larger group. Uh, Anna will be back hopefully next week. And yeah, thanks for tuning in. Uh, and I'll see you next time.